Hello everyone and welcome to a whole brand new season of Mental Health Much. This season I decided to do something a little bit different and focus the whole season just on one topic, which is the topic of body image. We're going to talk about diet culture, fat phobia, and all of these things. And by very popular demand, I am back with my co-host for the mini-series on Crystal Met, Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Vincent. Hello, everybody. Thanks for welcoming me back. <laughs> Jordan, our mini-series on Crystal Met has been listened to like twice as much as anything else that I've posted on my podcast. And part of that is because you're awesome. So thanks for coming back. I'm blushing. If you could see me, I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. I'm excited for this conversation. So Jordan, you knew a lot about Crystal Met, obviously. And I'm assuming just by the virtue of being a queer person, you know a lot about body image. Just a few things. <laughs> yeah. I also have a body, which is helpful as a topic. But it's not necessarily like a topic that you would call yourself like ultra connoisseur with. No, I think I'm going to have a lot to learn during our recording of this. So I'm excited to sort of be more of a student of body image and issues than the expert in this case. So. so Jordan, you are joining me for the whole season and it's going to be a really fun season. I'm doing things a little bit differently. So we'll have episodes where it's just you and me. We'll have guest speakers in certain of our episodes. I'm planning maybe a few like mini episodes called mini-zodes in their world of podcasting and more surprises. And so I'm really happy to have you join me for all of that. I'm excited for it, and I'm excited for the surprises. Get ready to be dazzled, surprised, shocked, titillated. <laughs> so today is just the first episode. So in the first part, you and me are going to talk about how we feel about this series and what is our relationship with body image stuff. And in the second part, we'll talk about the history of beauty standards and Of course, if we were to talk about the whole like anthropology world of beauty standards, it would take us like 17 episodes to only cover briefly some of it. So we decided to focus more or less on the past like 50 or 100 years. And unfortunately, we're going to focus on what we know, which is North America and Europe. And today I'm going to focus more on Straight people, unfortunately, we have to start somewhere and we decided to start with straight people. Mm -hmm. And next week in the part two of this episode, we'll continue with the history and you're going to take us more into the history of beauty standards for queer people. Yes, the exciting and glamorous history of beauty standards for queers. <laughs> so before we talk about straight people, let's talk about us. <laughs> ah, excellent. Finally, we get to the part I'm interested in. Jordan... What is your relationship with this massive topic that is body image? Okay. <laughs> well, I have a body, as I said, so that's yes. helpful. And you mentioned that as a gay man, I might have some issues with my body or some connection to it that's a little less than healthy. I'm trying to think of where to start. Growing up, I never had any body issues until I discovered my sexuality. It was an interesting oh. time. Yeah, I didn't. I have such a different story. <laughs> See, this is why you were having both of us on this show. You don't, don't get the same story. You get different takes on things. I only became aware of my body when I was going through adolescence, which was a really tumultuous time for me. 
when I was 12 years old, a really big year in my life, I was sort of coming out to myself and I was being bullied by this guy in my class quite extensively around my sexuality and my weight. Because like many boys at adolescence, I put on a bit of baby fat to prepare me for the growth spurt that I was bound to have. And I'm still waiting for my, (laughs) also waiting for my voice to change still. But anyway, any day now, any day (laughs) I'll be a man, but it was a really tumultuous time and being picked on because of my weight and my sexuality, which at the time I didn't really have words for, gave me a bit of an internalized complex. And so I developed a weird relationship with food at that time where it was about controlling what I ate and I was very calorie conscious. And I began to see myself as fat. Like that's the way I saw myself in the mirror. And that has not left me since I was 12 years old. I've always mm-hmm. saw myself as overweight, though most people would say that's absolutely not correct. You know, being a shorter man too, that's had an impact. Body image is more than just weight, I guess. And so for me, well, I lost my hair. You can't see it, but I lost my hair in my 20s. I started to lose my hair in my 20s. That's been a part of it. So I'm very used to looking at myself through that lens of like, what's flawed? What's not good enough? What do other people not like in me? Like, what are the things that are ugly about me? And coming into the gay world, when I eventually did come into the gay world, like it's a very hyper-physical, hyper-sexual focused on appearance culture and you look at yourself as how am I marketable sexually? Like, am I attractive Mm -hmm. to other people? What can I change? What isn't good enough about me that makes me undesirable? And that's been a really difficult thing to live with because that's a whole tape in my head. Like every morning when I wake up and I have a shower and I'm getting dressed, it's this negative critique of all the things that don't look right and whatnot. I'm very fortunate that I've never developed like any sort of eating disorder around my weight. Yeah. But as we learned on the PMP podcast about crystal meth, I've used drugs to control my weight, right? So it's various times. It's been part of those benefits that I got from it. So that's kind of where I'm at today, though. I will say this at 42 years old, I do think I'm looking the best I have in my life like in a long time. I've, I've grown accustomed to the baldness and I like it. I like my mustache, my facial hair. I think it's quite dapper. And I'm getting better about how I treat myself around my body. So that's been a positive. But I know that I'm not an aberration amongst gay men. A lot of gay men develop that hypercritical, hyperphysical, my worth is in my body kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. That is my relationship. And it's interesting because you called yourself a gay man. You talked about the gay men world. But I know that you identify more as a non-binary person. But a non-binary person who also navigates the gay scene, and that must be quite interesting and affect your body image. I'm going to go ahead and assume that. That's a good assumption to make. It's true. It really does. I apologize to our listeners that I didn't sort of qualify that. I identify as a gay man for convenience sake a lot of the time, but I'm a non-binary person who tends to, I present in a masculine way to a lot of people. And that's another thing about body images is how you dress and present yourself and how people read you and read your body for cues of who you are and your gender. And I don't present as a typical non-binary person or what people might think a non-binary person might look like because I don't alter my appearance. I did a lot more when I was younger to be mm. honest, than I do now because I've, I just don't feel I need to do that. I'm not here to prove to anybody that I'm non-binary. I am. So... <laughs> I love that you use the phrase, the typical non-binary person, as if there was like a contract that non-binary people had to sign about what they're going to look like. But it is, I understand completely what you mean, which what you mean is, I guess, androgynous. And and trans folks and non-binary folks don't need to look a certain way to have their identity valid. No, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that. 
So I think that's really where I would want to end off. I, I guess that comes to putting you on the hot seat, does it not? Yes, absolutely. So Jordan, I've been very vocal about this to you and to my friends. And like, I am terrified to record this season. I've been sort of like putting it off for, this is the fourth season of my podcast. So I kept like putting it off because it's a huge topic and it really affects me personally. It has affected me personally so much. And as a psychotherapist, there is this whole school of thoughts that like psychotherapists were supposed to be neutral. We're supposed to be, to literally like not have a personality. And although in my private life, I have talked about body image issues and eating disorders, and I've been kind of vocal about it in the past few years, to put them on a podcast is really terrifying for me to be able to say like, I'm a psychotherapist and I've had an eating disorder for most of my adult life is really scary and I can hear the little voice in the back of my brain because I'm doing the editing, right? That's kind of thinking like, will I cut that when I do the editing? So there is like a part of this that I'm really, really fearful of. And then the other part of why I'm so afraid of this show is that in the past, I want to say like three, four years, like researching more about eating disorder researching more about like fat phobia and stigma around fat people and the diet culture, it really like kind of changed my view. And I know that the diet industry is so powerful that it feels like in those few shorts episodes that we'll have the weight of like changing people's minds about fat people and about fat phobia and diet culture is so heavy. And in the past three years, I listened to, constantly to like three full-time podcasts that are only on this topic. I've read like several books only on that topic. And I'm like, (laughs) so anxious that I feel like I need to condense all of this information into a few episodes, because this is not only a podcast on fat and dieting, right? We're going to talk about all body image. So although I'm saving a few episodes a bit later in the season, to talk about fat phobia, dieting culture, and all of this, it's not even going to be the whole season. So I'm really anxious that I need to put all of this and do justice to this movement that I find really, really, really fascinating. I think you will do it justice. Just for the record, folks, he's going to do it justice because he's bringing <laughs> his whole self to this table and he's, he's giving it to you for real. So I believe that you're going to do it justice and we don't have to change the world. We just have to change a few people's hearts and minds. And I think we can do that. So to break the fort wall and be a little bit more open about myself, which is a thing that a part of my psychotherapist brain is yelling at me not to do, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to talk more about my relationship with body image. So like I've said, I've had, a, I've had an eating disorder and disordered eating for like most of my adult life. A lot of my body image stuff has always been linked to weight and fat, which I'm going to table a little bit to share personally, because we'll have episodes just on that. So I didn't want to just talk about this. But for example, I don't remember the moment when I started hiding to eat certain foods, but I was as young as probably five or six. And I was, I think, as young as like eight or nine, when my whole family, including me, I'm the youngest, went on a diet. I don't think I was targeted myself. I don't think my parents were like, our son needs to go on a diet. But my whole family went on a diet. It was the 90s. Everybody was on a diet. 
So for me, it looked a lot more like restricting calories when I was in my teens. And then I thought I felt better with this. I had a few relapses with restricting later in life. It's been a while since I've had one. Uh, the last time I had one was in my early 30s when I got a stupid Fitbit watch <laughs> that counted every single thing that I did. It was so toxic for me. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Those things are creepy as hell. Like, oof, I don't care how many steps I've taken. I don't care what my heart rate is. It's like, please don't. Oh my God. We should do a whole episode just on Fitbit watches. Ooh, yeah, and health technologies. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and then after that, in my 20s, I thought my eating disorder was cured because I no longer was restricting food, but I had orthorexia, which I don't know if you've ever heard of what orthorexia is. No, no I haven't. Orthorexia is, is not in the DSM, so it's not recognized yet as a diagnosable eating disorder, but it's an eating disorder where instead of being obsessed with the quantity of food that you eat, you are obsessed with the quality of the food that you eat. So it's counting macronutrients. It's all the trends of like, this is a superfood and quinoa and replace your sour cream by like Greek yogurt. And it's all of these things. And so in my 20s, I thought I no longer had an eating disorder. Little did I know that every single day, all I thought all the time was about food. And this is something I'm going to say out loud because I'm I'm very, um, I have a lot of guilt and shame about this. But one of my favorite author, her name is Aubrey Gordon, and she writes a lot about like fat activism and says there's nobody in life who is more fat phobic than people who are trying to lose weight or who are like really involved into diet culture. And so I'm really ashamed in my early 20s of how much fat phobia I had internalized, right? And it's not my fault because it's everywhere around us, but damn, <laughs> there's, some, there's some events in my life that now that I'm more aware of, like I wake up in the middle of the night to remember, like, I can't believe that I said this thing 10 years ago and I need to let that go. But if I ever was fat phobic towards anyone that I know, this is my official on-air shameful apology. <laughs> You're taking accountability. No cancel culture. Please don't cancel culture. Don't cancel Vincent. That term is really interesting to me, actually, because when I think about how I shop for food and how I choose foods that I eat, there's a little bit of that orthorexia. Am I saying it right? Yeah, orthorexia. Orthorexia that's involved in that. Even the idea of what's a healthy food and what's an unhealthy food and clean food and not clean food. And yeah. The, the weird things that the culture just feeds into us to do. It's like, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. But yeah. Yeah. So my whole journey started with a book. Actually, I started with a podcast. But the first book that I read about this was the book on intuitive eating. And intuitive eating is a way to sort of like start healing from eating disorder and disordered eating. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And one of the things that I love and I immediately started doing and I'm going to do on this podcast is instead of talking about healthy or unhealthy food or clean food and like unclean, I don't know. They talk about nutritious food and play food. And they say that a healthy diet has a good balance of both nutritious food and play food. And I really love that because they keep pointing out in the book that like both of these types of food are equally important for your health. And it removes a lot of the stigma instead of calling it like unhealthy or unclean. That's true. I mean, those terms are very loaded. So I eat a lot of play food, by the way. 
So, yeah. frozen and microwavable. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's table all of these conversations, yeah. but there's also the reality that like eating takes a lot of time and we're busy people. Mm -hmm. Thanks, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> On top of everything, also for years, I was running a group for gay, bi, and queer men on body image. And it was really interesting. I've learned so much, like doing the research, but also participating. I've had the chance to be, you know, as a facilitator through hours upon hours upon hours of gay men coming together to talk about body image. And um, there was a moment in the group where I asked people to do like a body map where like they would circle on a, on an outline of a person what they didn't like about themselves. And I was always very surprised at what people would circle or make annotations. And really, I've seen so many queer men being so hard on themselves. And it was such a thing, like each time in this group, every single participant would say something in the realm of like, I don't understand why any of you are in this group, but me, I deserve to be here and I should be here. So yeah, it was quite fascinating to see that. Yeah, it's really funny that people who we consider like conventionally like beautiful or conventionally attractive still struggle with these things. It's all about the internal lens that you have on it. It's never about what's actually in front of the mirror. It's about how you see yourself. Oh, yeah. That's the hard part. So you mentioned that when you were a teenager, it was rough. And of course, I was a queer teenager as well. It was rough for me as well. And I felt super awkward. And you said you grew larger before growing tall. And I kind of was the opposite. Like I grew like really tall before like growing larger. And I didn't know what to do with my arms because they were so much longer than the rest of my body. <laughs> my hair was curly. Yeah, teenagers all hate their body. It's very terrifying to be a teenager and seeing all these changes in your body and have no control over and be like, this is what I'm going to look like for the rest of my life. <laughs> I will always have pimples on my face. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we jump in, there were just a few words that I wanted to talk about to give us some vocabulary moving forward. Uh, one of them that I already named was orthorexia. I think it's a very important one to give a name to. The second one you've probably noticed is that I used the word fat. Mm -hmm. So I'm not fat. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Like, I, I'm, I'm not a fat person. But a lot of people have reclaimed the word fat. It's just like tall, short, skinny, fat, right? Like, it's just one of those. And then Aubrey, again, she said something in the realm of like, I know that if somebody is capable of saying the word fat without judgment, they're not going to insult me the way that if they say I'm, I'm pudgy or I'm big bone or I'm curvy or I'm like, I have a nice personality, right? So like the language only has stigma attached to it because we decided that it had stigma attached to it. And when I say it, it's not an insult. And then another word that I wanted to have is straight. What are you talking about with straight? So in the realm of skinny to fat, there are people and I identify like one of these people who have what is called a straight body. So a straight body is a body that's not fat and that's not skinny. It's just a straight body. So you're telling me you're straight. Yeah. <laughs> This is my coming out. <laughs> This is really throwing my world in the tizzy here. Okay. I think I get what you mean though. It's, it's some, a midpoint almost. It's like a... Yeah. It's just like uh, most people have a straight body, I would say. And I don't know, like 10 years ago, I think like five to 10 years ago, you're probably aware of it. The word like skinny fat, like people who were skinny fat. It was a big thing and a lot of people love 
that because they can finally like identify with something because they were like not fat, but like their arms were not muscular or they were skinny, but they had a belly and people use the expression skinny fat. And it's just such a gross word. And I much prefer like straight body for me just encompasses all of this in a much more neutral way. I like that. I can get behind that kind of straight. Yeah. And we'll have time to talk about this later, but people with a body like mine calling themselves fat is really not helping in the fat activist world and fat people. So I use the word straight body and it works for me. That's really some food for thought. I probably have to call myself a straight body as well because I really have no business calling myself fat and I can sense the stigma with which I call myself fat and I can see how that doesn't actually benefit anybody at all. It's just contributing to that stigma. Yeah. And very quickly, just because it's the same word that means two different things, like being on a diet and having a diet, they get really confusing. But when I talk about diet culture or the diet industry, I am talking about the like almost like $70 billion industry that tried to convince you that the only way that you can be healthy is by losing weight and counting calories and being thin as if like there was never a healthy fat person who walked the surface of this planet. Enough vocabulary for today. I love that I started saying I'm not going to talk about weight stuff because that's not the episode today. And now we've been recording for 31 minutes and that's almost exclusively what I talked about. I said that I had curly hair that I didn't like when I was a kid too. In the next episode, it sounds curly hair. (laughs) Uh, Anything to add about your, your relationship with the topic of body image? Now that I'm, now I'm getting nervous <laughs> because I just realized how deep this kind of goes. Like when you were sharing about your experiences, I was like, oh, there's stuff in there I can relate to that I didn't really acknowledge. So there might be some jaw-dropping revelations and self-discovery moments on our next couple of episodes together. So get ready. Yeah. But I'm just really grateful that you are making the space to talk about this because I don't reflect on it enough. And what you shared about the gay men in your group just reminded me, this is something we all live with. And even though the series isn't all about gay people, it's it's... I mean, we both come from it from having grown up thinking of ourselves as gay men or queer men and navigating those scenes. So, of course, this first talk when we talk about just our experience is really like gay men's focus. But that's why we'll have guest speakers with different identities and experience later in the season. Yes. Jordan, are you ready to talk about the history of beauty standards? You know, I love to talk about history and historical things. And speak about it in a fancy accent, yes. Is that the accent we're doing for the rest of the episode? Yes, it is. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So let's find out what the history has to teach us about body image. So for this episode, I researched beauty standards in straight people. And like I said earlier in part two, you're going to take over and talk about queer people. Our initial plan was to put all of that in the same episode, and we quickly realized it was impossible. It would be a five-hour episode. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm excited to hear about what straight people and uh, body image have to do with this. (laughs) So one of the things we have to do if we talk about straight people and cis people is that we have to re-accept the idea that there is a binary. It was really hard to do the research without separating the binary between men and women. So yuck, but also (laughs) this is how I made my research for today. We can accept that. Like I said, we went back only like 50 to 100 years ago, and we're going to talk mostly about like European. It's going to be a lot of white history, unfortunately, although we're trying to not only talk about this. 
And so I'm going to start with talking about women. So women and men, like cis women and cis men, were influenced very differently with body image throughout the past, like, 100 years or so. Women's fashion and the way that they had to look, it's bananas to look at their history. It was actually, like, really challenging to do that in a sort of, like, contained way because cis women had suffered from fashion and beauty standards and impossible beauty standard for so long and it changes so quickly whereas for men it moved slower especially in the 20th century it's starting to move faster now but for a long time like having money and having power was much more important than being beautiful and muscular for men Mm -hmm. so let's start with women if we look at the past like 100 years or so about every like decade for women the fashion changed just completely i don't really understand that but it's like women are not allowed to like look the same way for more than 10 years it really goes from like now you have to have curves now you have to not have curves now you have to have curves again now you have to be like a glamazon with a lot of makeup now it's just a very natural look you still need to apply a ton of makeup but it needs to look like you don't have makeup it changes all of the time but all together there's this need for women to constantly get skinnier. Um, So if we look quickly, before the wars, the world wars, they were like corset and then those like impossible curves that women had to have. And then the wars like really influenced the way that women had to look, especially during the Second World War, like women were a task force, so they had to work more They had to wear clothes that were more efficient to work. And after that, they were like more conservative years because there was less money. And then in the 50s, I guess the dust settled on after the war. So women really had to become glamorous and curvy again. So in the 50s, it was the hourglass shape. You know, like Elizabeth Taylor, Shirley MacLaine, like this is the 50s. And then... In the 60s, women went back to work more, and then they had to be less curvy, and they had to look like working women. And then in the 70s, it was the disco years, and then women were asked to be curvy again and have a flowery, natural look. (laughs) I don't know what that means. I think it was all about the hair in the 70s and sort of like little makeup or like natural makeup. Mm Mm-hmm. Was she born this way, or is it a flowery, natural look? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. One thing that's interesting in the 80s, well, dieting really, really becomes a thing in the 80s. And then women not only had to be thin or curvy, but now they also had to start being not muscular, but tone, right? Because women could not possibly be muscular, but now... They have to work out, so they need to be toned. This is the era of Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Rest in peace, Olivia. But that song, Physical, which is like all about that gym culture that was mm-hmm. there. Like, I'm Jamie Lee Curtis in that Perfect Ten movie that she starred in. Maybe this is not your time, but it's my era. So, yeah, that was definitely a thing. My mom started exercising in the 80s like with all those home exercise programs. I think one of the things that happened is that women were allowed more and more in the public sphere to wear less clothing and so where the curves and their shape before that could be altered by corset and things like that now if they're only wearing like short shorts and a tank top then 
it's harder to like alter the shape of the body. Yeah. You can't put a corset under a bra. You just can't. <laughs> and then from the nineties and the two thousands, it's bananas. The trends change like every year, almost like your makeup needs to be like this. This is what you need to look like. It's just like so stressful And it's funny because Facebook, I don't know what my Facebook thinks I do in my spare time, but I have a lot of these like pushed videos that are like, if you're still doing your makeup, like we were doing in 2018, you're doing it wrong. Like contouring in 2022, Jordan is very different than contouring in 2018. And I hope, you know, look at my face. You know that I know because I'm contouring correctly and my highlight is flawless. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, like we see women who have straight bodies and even thin bodies, like Britney Spears come to mind just being insulted for being fat, like every single time that she dares show her body. Yeah, there's been that huge outcry right now because she's doing that. She's owning her body right now because she's out of her conservatorship and people are critiquing her body again. Like she was just out from under male dominated control. Like Leave her alone. Leave mm -hmm. Britney alone. So, yeah, it was really difficult to have the history because it's like look glamazon look natural look curvy look flat look skinny have curves have the curves at the right place show skin don't show skin show the right amount of skin show the right skin don't show that mm -hmm. kind of skin like it's just really it's a lot and uh the one trend that exists is that like women are expected to be thinner through their life and if they dare have a straight body like britney spears do not show it Cover it up. Yeah. It is bananas. I mean, you think about all the other messages that society gives cisgendered straight women too. They're always contradictory and put people in constant insecurity. Yeah. So I'm not surprised by that. There was something we wanted to say, I think, about makeup though too, which mm -hmm. is like when we talk about women that are, who are not white, thinking about the fact that it's only been in recent history, like we're talking maybe the last 10, maybe 15 years, if I'm being generous, that makeup shades were available for darker-skinned women that matched their color. Yeah. I remember going to the store with my mom to buy makeup, and you would never see anything, like, darker than, like, a light tan. And we know that, that dark-skinned women weren't getting makeup that matched their shades. Even capitalism hadn't discovered that you could make money off of selling more makeup to more women. And that just goes to show how so much of beauty is informed by white supremacy, all these other sort of factors. Yeah, absolutely. It always centered like white women as the standard, which is kind of weird in a way because so many beauty trend, especially now, are started by black people and especially black women or even like black drag queens and queer people. And they're just like co-opted by white culture. Mm -hmm. I think of the Kardashians and how they've adopted that as their own and sold that back to people. I know. And then recently I saw like a headline, somebody was making fun of it on my Instagram. There was like a, a serious headline in a magazine that said like, I'm sorry for the Kardashians, but curves are out again. And I'm just like, how can you make curves out? Like, oh, it's no longer trendy. So we're going to have to like cancel every like a black woman that has curve. Mm -hmm. And not to mention all the other people who went and like, adjusted their body to accommodate that trend, who got yeah. body implants. Like, it's ridiculous. There's also a really interesting political thing that I wanted to spend time on for women. We know politically that women didn't have a big part in the political sphere outside of the home sphere you know, in the past hundred years. And there was this whole movement where like with the wars, they started working and then with capitalism now, like women need to work full time and take care of the house full time because it's just impossible to like 
rent an apartment in most of the cities, at least in Canada. But the political movement also played a huge influence on women's fashion. And one of the really terrible way that this played out is that when the suffragette came out and women were asking to vote, men who didn't want women to have rights were using like terrible image and you can Google them. It's really bad of like fat and like masculine sort of like grumpy, ugly looking woman being like, oh, is this what you want women to look like? Like as if if women gained the right to vote, suddenly they would all become ugly. And they were like these, these image and caricatures that became very prominent. And so in order to counter this, women who thought they were doing good at the time, but in hindsight, like that had like a lot of impact, a lot of like feminist women of the first and second generation got even like skinnier and like, quote unquote, like prettier, right? Showcasing like, no, I can be a feminist and be like skinny and pretty, which is fascinating. It's like a really fascinating, like backlash that I don't know anybody could see coming. It's interesting because you talk about that. When we talk about lesbians in our next episode, there's a lot of parallels there. Mm -hmm. Being presenting as man-hating, the anxieties of men show up in these things more than the actual reality for women, I think. So the fear that men have of women... I'm not going to give it away. We're going to talk about it in the next episode. So mm-hmm. Perfect. I remember, I don't remember all of the specific, but I remember like reading a feminist book about dieting too. And the whole like theme of this book was literally saying like, as women are so busy changing, AKA like shrinking and making their bodies smaller, they're so busy doing that, then they don't have as much time and energy to be political and advocate for change. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, oh, change yourself individually instead of like changing the whole system. Mm-hmm. That was a really interesting view. And I I don't know how much like the people, the 1% of the 1% like has thought of this fact or if it's just like something that's happening, but it was a really interesting read. It makes a lot of sense. And, and who are they doing the changing for, which is the other question. They're changing for men. They're changing to please men and putting men at the center of every woman's life as getting a man by looking a certain way is the most imperative thing a woman can do. And to do it elsewise is just an ethmet to them. So it's interesting how men center themselves in these things all the time. And as the conversation changes and women stop doing things only for men, the diet culture also evolves to say, oh, you no longer do this for men. You do this for yourself. You do this for your health. The reclaiming of the word self-care, that just means go to the gym and eat salad, right? Like, it's really fascinating how the diet culture always manages to be only half a step behind and co-opt everything that comes out just to sell beauty products and dieting pills and like moon juice powder that costs $7 a drink. Yep, supplements and new makeup products that you didn't have the year before that cure things that you didn't know that you actually had an issue mm-hmm. with. And nobody makes friends with salad. Can we just say that one there? <laughs> nobody makes friends with salad. It's not but healthy. also, if you love salad, eat salad as much as you want. I say no, but Vince, I was right on this one. Have a cheeseburger. <laughs> so, like I said, for men, it changed quite slower. It's very different than for women. So instead of going on almost like a play-by-play, there are like four figures that appear to have been important in the men's fashion or like body image standard look. So we're going to talk about those four people now. The first is Bernard 
with two R at the end, McFadden. Do you know Bernard? Have you ever heard I of this person? I don't know Bernard. I don't know. I don't only know one person on your list, Vincent. One person. That's Jack Lane. But... <laughs> Wait, you don't know James Dean? Oh, I did know James Dean. <laughs> too. Um, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> no, I don't know who Bernard McFadden is. Okay. First, it's really interesting to say that Bernard was named Bernard with a D, like a normal person, but change it to have two R because it sounded more like a lion. <laughs> I'm really stifling the chuckles here. Yep. Sounds like something a straight man would do. So Bernard McFadden lived from uh, 1868 to 1955, and he's considered like the first fitness influencer, not because he has any like fitness degree or he's a doctor or anything like that, but just because he published a magazine called Physical Culture, which was the first big bodybuilding and fitness magazine in America. So he just sort of like saw a market, published a magazine, most of the photos of the magazines are photos of him and sort of like made his name, <laughs> not by being good at something, but at being the first who did it with some success. Yeah, it sounds like an influencer to me, like pictures of himself, <laughs> yeah. wild claims about health. Um, yeah, Bernard was weird. He's the person who really popularized the practice of fasting. And he really strongly felt that fasting was the surest way for physical health, that it could like heal literally everything and rejuvenate the body. He literally said that like fasting was just the only way to cure virtually all type of diseases and show, and that's important because it's so important in diet culture, but like a degree of strength and control that others that don't have should be put to shame. So like when you fast and you make yourself suffer for something, you're so much better than other people. And he was the first person to publish a fitness magazine. So it did not forebode well for us in the future. I, I'm canceling Bernard McFadden. Really. He's canceled. <laughs> We've canceled Bernard. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. I put him in because if you Google images of him, Bernard McFadden, he was what was considered to be really like fit at the time. And his body looks very different from the second person that I want to bring who is Jack LaLanne, who you said you knew. So who is Jack LaLanne? I only know Jack LaLanne from a comedy sketch. <laughs> I can't tell you where and what show it was on, but that's how we know Jack LaLanne. I know he was a bodybuilding guru back in the day. The way they portrayed him in this, this sketch was quite funny. But yeah, that's all I know about him. So I'm hoping you're going to tell me more. Yeah. I mean, 100%, if you Google him right now, you will recognize him. You've seen him. He was kind of everywhere. But he was a fitness and nutritionist guru who was like very popular and roughly like 50 years later than Bernard McFadden. So if you Google both of these people and you look at the way their body looks, only like 50 years apart. It's really fascinating because the method of working out during those 50 years has really, really, really changed. And so the bodies look differently. So what we think of fitness right now for men is like the chest really well developed and like very like muscular arm. Hmm. Bernard looked nothing like that because at the time for fitness, it was more like gymnastic and things like that. The exercises to just have a define chest and arms just did not exist. We're just not invented yet. So the six pack was not invented then. Exactly. Whereas Jack LaLanne was really like 
ripped. almost like a, a yeah rip in a almost like steroid kind of way i don't know him well enough maybe he just had the dna of someone with really big muscles but like looking at how the bodies have changed just over like those 50 years actually jacqueline lane died only like uh, 10 years ago and he was an active public figure up until like the end so it's really like fascinating to look at those two things i know that like podcasts are not like a, a visual thing but as you listen to this you can google those two people and kind of see what i mean I'm actually going to Google it for you so I can describe my reaction live on air. So, so you're, you're doing it. Jordan, you're Googling. Start with Bernard McFadden and tell us what you see. Okay. Well, he is certainly a thing. <laughs> He's wearing this weird, like, underwear <laughs> in most of his photos. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he is... How do I describe them? The first thing that's getting, yeah, weird like granny panties. I'm just mm-hmm. going to call it what it is. These are granny panties. Some things that you could kind of recognize like well-toned legs, but like not not the typical like sort of, for men, I think it's like a V-shape. You want broad shoulders. Exactly. Like, he's just straight. Yeah. He does look like he could like throw a disc very far or I don't know what people did. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> discus. We're going back to ancient Greece here. <laughs> We're talking about sport. I don't know, Jordan. <laughs> he could kick a ball. Yeah. He does look a lot like actually like an ancient Greek statue and that's sort of same sort of like well-proportioned, right? Whereas I think mm. the more modern man would look really out of place in that kind of classically. Yeah. Attractive. Yeah. Given the time frame, that makes sense. Now let's, let's look up Jack LaLanne. Jack LaLanne now. Okay, Jack. Oh my God, Jack LaLanne is... Okay, this is what we call campy. Jacqueline is very campy looking. Definitely a more muscular arm, more pecs, mm-hmm. more biceps, more of a chest, thinner in the waist. I don't think his legs look as good. And he's posing like a ballerina here. I can't even describe the pose, folks. You have to look it up yourself. He is hamming it up for the camera. Yeah. But yeah, definitely a different body. Uh, one of the way that I could describe the difference between Bernard and Jack is, so a very important part of my childhood, Jordan, were the Ninja Turtles. And in the 80s, if you look at the Ninja Turtle, they're kind of just like straight body fighters. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've seen the reboots of the Ninja Turtles like a few years ago. They look terrifying. They're like buff turtles. They're super buff. They're kind of weird. The way that they changed and the way that you look at action figurine for men action figurine in the 80s and now changed you know, if we think of Barbie, she's always been the worst. <laughs> she's been consistently the worst since her creation. Whereas with men, we're kind of seeing that shift like as we are alive. Yeah, Ken was never all that bad. Ken was pretty nondescript for a long time. But I mean, I'm from the generation of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which promoted a very muscular, yeah, very different image of what men are supposed to look like as well. So, yeah. So the next person we have to talk about is Bo Brummel. Do you know Bo Brummel? The name is familiar, but I don't know much about him now. We don't like him. So he was in the UK. He was born in 1778 and died in 1840. And he is literally the reason why men cannot wear nice clothes, like in our part of the world. He is the person that decided that men should not wear colors. And he had so much influence. He He's a middle class. He comes from a middle class London family, but he gains like so much influence by like being a dandy and like becoming friends with King George 
in the war who was not king at the time, future king. And apparently he was the worst and he was constantly like mocking people and excluding people. He was like the mean girl of the UK dandies. Apparently like you had to be in his good grace to be someone. Otherwise, like he would just mock you and dismiss you. And he decided that in order to be a man, your aesthetic needed to be impeccably elegant, but never noticed. So all of the fabric that you wear needed to be the more rich fabric. The cut needed to be perfect, but no colors and nothing that like stands out. And then that led to 200 years of black and gray suits for men. And that's why when we look at other parts of the world that were not under the influence of Beau Brummel, men are allowed to wear much more colorful clothing than we have here in America and Europe. We dislike Bob Bremel intensely, and I have him to blame for my love of navy blue. <laughs> you love navy blue? <laughs> well, we're only given three colors to choose from, right? You've got black, you've got gray. Brown has been in and out. Navy blue has been consistent. It's the more colorful of the three. Mm-hmm. It's pretty dismal. And the way that women had to be all peacocks and colorful, but men had to look the same black tux, the same. Yeah, it's so dull. So- yeah. At the time, there was also this big, like, you know, Frenchmen were always like frivolous and like effeminate and all of this. Whereas like UK men were really manly because they only were black and dark gray and they would never stand out and they were so manly. And this still influences us to this day. It's finally slowly, slowly starting to change that men are allowed to wear colors, but he's the person to blame for 200 years of black suits. GQ thanks you, Bo Brummel, but we do not. So that's Bo Brummel. And then very quickly, I want to talk about James Dean. Who is James Dean? He was a very sexy star in the 1950s of Rebel Without a Cause and a couple other movies. And apparently he was a bit gay, but I heard just a rumor. Mm. But he was very, very sexy. Like He popularized sort of like white t-shirt jeans, casual, like cool look that like, I still to this day think is the best way a man can dress. <laughs> yeah, he really like popularized the fact that men, if they have this certain body that he was blessed with this DNA had, could wear just nothing but a simple t-shirt and jeans and look fashionable, right? He was the first of his kind on movies on the big screen, whereas before that, most of the men who were main characters were a suit and they were kind of older. It didn't matter if they were fat. And he was just like this very sexy image. When you had a body like his, men no longer needed money and status to appear good looking because it was one of the first time that men showed their status without expensive things. And also he died at 24. And so unlike other sexy men that we saw age, James Dean never aged. So we Mm. never saw him not with the body that he had when he was 22 years old, because the body functions differently when you're 22 years old than when you're 36, 40. Right. And so he kind of like stayed in our like imaginary as like the man that you have to be, but it's rough to put like beauty standard based on someone who was so young in everything that he appeared in. But we do that. We pursue youth. We'll talk about that later. I'm sure. But, but it's interesting, his contemporary Marlon Brando, we got to see Marlon Brando age, and he was very sexy at the time, too. And he's 
age like most men age, right? He's, he's lost his youthful body, his musculature. He's a bigger man. And yeah, a very different story there. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is the role of racism and eugenics. I think it's really important to name that. Jordan, do you know what eugenics is, what it means, the concept behind it? So, I mean, I would be, I would hesitate to call it a science because it's not a science. It's really, <laughs> it's an ideology based on something that appears like science, like words that makes it seem sciency. Very sciency. You can make anything sound sciency. And yes. Lesson for folks at home: racism has been made to sound really sciency for a long time, but it's not real and it's yeah. not scientific. But I know eugenics is about sort of getting rid of the unwanted elements in the genetic pool and breeding them out of existence. It's about doing away with unwanted qualities or characteristics that we believe are made up of our genetic code. So for example, if eugenics would be something like sterilizing indigenous women, which has happened in Canada up until recently, yeah. about allowing people that were from races we didn't want to see propagated to actually have children. Like That's a more extreme example, but there's a lot of other examples which I'm sure you'll elaborate on. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. This is exactly what it is. I feel like the importance of racism and eugenics in beauty standards should have its own episode, but I, I don't know that I would be the best person to talk about this, but I still felt like it, it needed to be named in this episode. So you explained it really well. It's a false, like, pseudoscientific idea that we can, I'm putting quotes now, but, like, improve the quality of the human population or the human race by like removing undesirable traits. And it goes from like beauty, race, IQ, fatness. There was a big thing of people with autism not being allowed to like reproduce. And that if you control who is allowed to reproduce and you only have the best of the best people reproduce, then you have like a better race. But in order... To do that, somebody needs to decide who is the best of the best. And who, Jordan, did you think put themselves in charge of deciding who were the best of the best humans on the planet? I'm going to guess, Alex, for the win and for the $1,000, that it's cisgendered white men. Yes, it is. And who do you think they put at the top of the hierarchy? Well, given recent developments in human history, I would say probably cisgendered white men. Yes, exactly. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. It's a bunch of like white men with power who decided that white men were the top of what the the humanity had to offer. And it's bananas, like how much the eugenic like pseudoscience has influence like racism and colonization and slavery, right? Like saying that like, oh, black people have been enslaved for so long now that their like IQ is lower, that they now love being enslaved and that they've evolved to like it or like it's normal that they're doing the manual labor because they are more muscular and less intelligent, like it's it's all it's not true. Like nothing that I say is true, but it's all like rhetoric that was used in order to explain why white men were at the top of the pyramid, quickly followed by white women, obviously. Right. A lot of women of color were hypersexualized, even as they were demonized, they were hypersexualized and like looked at as exotic. I hate that word when it comes to beauty and image, like exotic or foreign or all of those words that we use to describe people that are about turning them into sexual creatures as well. In terms of beauty and body image, that's a big thing. 
Mm-hmm. That was a big thing with eugenics and racism is that black women tend to be bigger and have more curves than white women. And so they were always associated with like gluttony and animals and excess as opposed to like the virtuous and skinny and pious white woman in order for white women to become closer and closer to the top of the hierarchy, they had to look less and less like black women. Right. Your comments about black women's bodies earlier, where we were talking about the curves and how they were trendy and then off trend. Yeah. That's the same thing that we're talking about here is that racialized women's bodies are used as like a trend or black hair is in this year and then it's not. And a lot of activists I've heard have been talking about the fact that you need to stop doing that. Like we're not a trend. These are our bodies and leave them alone. We're not a fashion statement. Well, that's the problem is when black hair are in fashion, white women can try to mimic black hair. But when they go out of fashion or like when curves go out of fashion, like this article was saying, black women cannot not have these bodies or not have this hair. Yeah. On top of eugenics and racism, there's also like orientalism that really, really played a huge part in beauty standards. So for a very long time, in order to be a proper white person, you had to be everything that anybody like further east in like Italy, I guess, was not. That's crazy. Even that white has not always been a set definition either, too. I mean, it is crazy making to think about all of these things that people were not supposed to be and linking that to the changing ideas about what white was in the first place. Like, it's pretty nuts and pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. So like all of these larger power dynamics fully play a role in our beauty standards right now in a way that sometimes, especially as white people, we don't even realize of course, we're, we're blind to it because it's a system that we're designed to be blind to. Mm-hmm. So that makeup thing that I shared earlier about not seeing black women's makeup in the store, like growing up, I never thought of that as abnormal. I never thought of Band-Aids being for white people only either as being abnormal and wrong. But now, like when you look into it, you have to, when you become aware of it, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. So Jordan, we're kind of at the end of my brief, very brief history of beauty standards. How is that for you? I'm kind of in shock right now, to be quite honest. I mean, talking about it all, you just, the picture is very, very disheartening in some ways to think about this is the culture that we live in, but very informative. I mean, I love the stuff that I learned about Bernard McFadden and really have a hate on for Bo Brummel. So I'm coming for you, Bo Brummel. I'm coming for you, even though you're dead. I'm coming yeah. for you. <laughs> I really appreciated like the, the lens on that, right? Because it gives us a picture of what we're working with. And if people think they're going to get something light and uplifting with the queer people and their body image... Get ready. It gets more depressing. Yeah, we're not suddenly better and uh, curing everyone. Yeah, no, it's not all fierce, honey, work, slay. It is going to be some depressing oppression and some cultural appropriation again. So, Yeah, so it's kind of rough. And although we got 200 years of black suits, it really feels like for a lot of it, cis women had it worse than cis men for a really long time. And for you and me as like queer men, gay men, it was also really rough to have to live to the expectations of what it is to be manly and men enough. And also having to look like 22-year-old James Dean in a white t-shirt and jeans while smoking a cigarette. Well, that part's easy for me. (laughs) I can do that. I do that flawlessly. It's everything else that I struggle with. But you're, you're right. I mean... For me, my relationship to cis women is my mother. 
I'm very close to and I've watched over the course of my life as my mom has been constantly evaluated based on her appearance, even though she's an intelligent and bright woman. And seeing that from that sort of lens of history is like, cis women have had a lot tougher, a lot tougher in a lot of respects. And then you add in all the intersectionality. It's like, it's really awful out there. I'm glad that people are talking about this and, and looking at ways to change that culture. And I think a lot of people are. And I'm glad that you're doing that on this podcast and you, you took the steps to sort of be honest with folks and share your challenges with that. I think it's going to be a great series. Yeah. It's really tough because each time people are trying to do a movement, stepping away, the diet and beauty industry is like half a step away and just taking it and now like trying to sell you products and sell me products. It's, it feels like a fight that's really, really challenging to fight. And a lot of time, and I remember this from the group, a lot of time when people hear, oh, you should care less about beauty standards or you should be mindful of not hating on your body as much. What they heard was then, oh, should I do the opposite? Does that mean I should lay in sweatpants with no haircut, eating chips all day? And I'm like, this is not what I mean, right? We live in a world where we have to find a way where we feel good about ourselves, but if it could come without like stigma and without shame and with accepting like a variety of bodies and without just like in a very quick false way to just associate fatness with illness and death, right? It's really like tricky. And I'm never going to say to people, don't go out, don't move, don't eat nutritious food. Like that's not what it's like, but how do we do that without indulging in those beauty standards and without being so hard on ourselves. And I'm hoping that at the end of these, we'll have a little bit more of an answer. I hope so too. I mean, that entire culture and industry is based on insecurity and making people feel bad about themselves so other people can make money off of you feeling like crap. Mm-hmm. I think seeing through those systems is important. And I think we'll get there. I hope we get there. Yeah, there's a really interesting quote that comes from the like disabled activist that says like people don't realize that health is a privilege and an accident and uh, it's a thing that it feels like we can control but we really can't control that much and i think like beauty and weight enters like inside of that and i understand why the disabled movement talked about health and not beauty and weight but this industry is telling us that we have control over what we look like and in a certain way we do like yeah i guess when you have a ton of money and don't have to do labor you have more time for Mm -hmm. like all of these creams and and i don't know like some of it has to somewhat work a lot of it doesn't yeah (laughs) (laughs) i use a lot of creams they're not doing anything to hide aging it's happening i'm decaying before your very eyes folks thank god this is a podcast that people can't see me (laughs) There will be no hating on our body in this podcast starting the next episode. The next episode, we're both stunning. We're stunning. Yeah, so that's kind of where we are to start. And I, again, feel a little bit overwhelmed with the task ahead of us, but it's going to be fun. I will try and shoulder some of that burden, Vincent. So thank you for inviting me to come back on your podcast again and to our listeners. Godspeed. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Um, So... This is the end of the first episode. Part two is going to start really soon. And in the meantime, uh, you can go listen to my other episodes, to my other series with Jordan. 
And uh, please talk about mental health as much as you can and stay safe. Bye.